What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Chapter 7 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter 7. I turned detective. Murdered? For a moment I was stupefied by the doctor's revelation, and then, as he went on to describe the course of the bullet, and certain technical aspects of the case, a sudden rush of thankfulness came over me. Let me explain. The coroner had given a verdict of murder by person or persons unknown. From the first moment I heard of the accident, I was certain there was something sinister about it, but had little on which to base my belief. The coroner's verdict substantiated my suspicions and gave me a chance to work in the open, to bring into court, if possible, the people I suspected. Murder by person or persons unknown? I knew the persons. Zalnik, Metzger, Schreiber. They must have recognized the car as it came toward them, and taken a shot as they went by. My thoughts were recalled from their wanderings by an unexpected sentence of the coroner's. I had been following him vaguely, but now my attention was riveted. One could not be sure, because of the varied course that bullets take through the body, but the shot seemed to have been fired from above and behind. Unless it were otherwise proved, I'd strongly suspect that the murderer had fired the shot from the back seat of the car. "'Of course that is impossible,' I said, "'because in that case the murderer would have been in the accident.' "'I had the same idea,' he said slowly, giving me a searching look. "'Helen?' I felt suddenly sick and faint. I wanted air, sunlight, to get away from that darkened room and those piercing eyes that seemed to read my thoughts. I thanked him for letting me know what he had discovered, and hurriedly excused myself.' Helen! The blood pounded through my temples. God! No! Willful, spoiled woman, if you will, ready to leave her husband without thought of the consequences, to go with another man. But premeditated murder? A thousand times? No! I felt that with the unworthy suspicion in my mind I could not face Mary, and I waited a moment at the bottom of the stairs before going up to meet her. There were two questions that had to be answered. Was Helen in the back seat when the car left Mary's the evening before? And had Jim told Helen about the proofs he had of Wood's irregularities? Mary was probably there when Helen and Jim left, and could answer both questions. I wiped the perspiration from my forehead, and assuming as calm an air as possible, went upstairs. Mary was chatting with the little intern, but as soon as she saw my face, she hurried toward me. "'You look as though you'd seen a ghost. What was it, Bubs?' "'Not here,' I cautioned. "'Wait until we get outside.' We walked down the broad, sunlit steps and climbed into the car. I felt like a traitor to let Mary even think that I suspected Helen, but my questions had to be answered. "'Will you have luncheon with me, Mary?' "'Certainly,' she answered. "'Let's go to Luigi's. We can talk quietly there.' 
I headed for downtown and kept my eyes on the road, dreading to put my question into words. "'What was it, Bupps?' Mary asked. I decided to ask what I had to ask before telling her the coroner's verdict. "'Did you see Helen leave the house with Jim yesterday?' "'Yes, I was looking out the window when they started. Why?' I could hardly force myself to go on. "'Was Helen—' "'Did Helen get into the front seat with Jim?' I faltered. "'No, she climbed into the back,' Mary replied. "'They had some sort of an argument before they left. "'I knew Jim was excited and that Helen was angry. "'Of course I didn't hear all that passed between them. "'I tried not to hear any, "'but they talked very loud and were right in the next room. "'What did you hear?' I asked, my heart sinking. "'Once Jim laughed.' a hard sort of laugh, and I heard Helen say, "'You lie! You know you are lying! He will disprove everything you say!' Another time I heard Helen exclaim, "'Give me that pistol! You shan't threaten him while I'm there!' I knew, of course, they were speaking of Frank Woods, but I didn't know what it was all about. "'Why do you ask all this, Bupps?' "'Mary,' I said, and I couldn't look at her. "'The coroner has given a verdict of murder.' "'Murder!' she gasped. I nodded. "'Jim was shot from behind while he was driving Helen out to the country club to meet Woods, and Helen was in the back seat. "'She didn't do it!' Mary burst out. "'She couldn't have done it!' "'Of course she didn't do it!' I exploded. We were glaring at each other as though each defended Helen from the other's accusation." We know she didn't do it, but there are many who wouldn't take our word for it. I could see by the way the coroner looked at me this morning that he is ready to accuse her of murdering Jim, and it's up to us to save her by finding out who really is guilty. We drove up in front of Luigi's, and I was able to get a small table in the corner by ourselves. Although no one could have overheard us, I sat as near Mary as I could, and we talked with our heads close together. Mrs. Webster Pratt came in the door just then with a luncheon party, and, noticing how we were engrossed, came bouncing over to the table at once. "'Poor Mr. Thompson, my heart bleeds for you, simply bleeds for you.' I got to my feet and permitted her to squeeze my hand. She squeezes your hand, or pats you at the least opportunity, and this was one unequalled. "'Poor dear Mr. Felderson, it is such a loss.' I was shocked to death when I heard it. And Mrs. Felderson, the poor child, is she going to, ah, uh, ah, uh, to, to, to? I was afraid so when I read it in the paper. I'm surprised to find you here. How is your poor dear mother? I knew that the woman would gossip all over the place about my heartlessness unless I explained my presence in a public café so soon after Jim's death and my sister's injury. "'My mother doesn't know about it yet,' I said quietly. I didn't think her strong enough to stand the shock. I shouldn't have come here, but I had a very important matter to talk over with Miss Pendleton. "'I could see that from the way you were sitting,' she giggled. "'I'm afraid that you are going to give Eastbrook something to talk about as soon as this distressing thing is over.' She patted my arm and beamed at Mary and swished over to her party. "'We shouldn't have come here, Mary. 
I said with a sour grimace. I forgot that old cat sometimes comes here. She'll spread it all over town that you were down here making love to me before Jim was decently buried. She'll probably say we were engaged. Well, I wish we were. I know I must have shown the longing in my eyes. Don't, please, Warren, Mary whispered, putting her hand on my arm. We've got too much to do. That Pratt woman drove everything out of my mind for a moment. I wish she hadn't seen us here. I didn't feel as though I could eat a thing, and neither did Mary, so I told the waiter to bring us a light salad, and sent him away. Mary, I said after he was gone, we know Helen didn't do this thing, but if you are called by the grand jury to tell what you just told me, they will bring an indictment against her in a minute. They couldn't, Mary expostulated. They couldn't believe such a thing. Don't you think Mrs. Webster Pratt would believe it if she knew everything that we know? I argued. She'd believe it with only half as much proof, and she has just about as much mental equipment as the average juryman. There'll be about four of Mrs. Webster Pratt's on that jury. What can we do, Bupps? Mary begged with tears in her eyes. Well, I said, you've got to see Helen as soon as they let you, and as often as they'll let you, so that the first time she speaks you'll be able to hear what she says. But suppose she dies, Bupps? Even while she is unconscious, I went on, disregarding her query, she may say something that will give us a clue. I'm going out to the bridge right after lunch. What for? Mary asked. To see if I can find Jim's revolver. If it had been found on Helen, the coroner would have told me this morning, I think. Of course they may not have taken it at all. In that case it will still be at your house. If Helen took it with her it must have fallen out when the car turned over, and if it did, I must get it before anyone else does. The waiter interrupted here with the salad. Mary dabbled with hers a bit, and then said, Bupps, hadn't I better get out of town? No, I replied. They'd be sure to find you, and when you gave your testimony it would hurt Helen just that much more. But I can't stand up before them and tell what I heard. I'll lie first. Her lovely little face clouded up as though she were going to cry. You'll do nothing of the kind, I insisted. We know Helen didn't do it, don't we? Yes. Her tone was not convincing. Well, then, whatever we say can't hurt her and we're bound to find out who the guilty persons are. But, Bupps, who could it have been? she asked anxiously. I still think it was Zalnik and the men who were with him, but it might have been Woods. I'm going to find out everything he did last night. It may throw some light on the case. After all, he is the one who had the most to gain by Jim's death, and his words of last night were mighty queer. I paid the waiter, and we left the café. On the way to Mary's I stopped at the undertaker's and made arrangements for Jim's burial. The man in charge was the saddest-looking person I had ever seen. He had a woebegone look about him that was infectious, made you want to weep for him, or with him. He discussed the funeral arrangements in a hushed voice, and finished by whispering, I sincerely hope what the papers are hinting is not so. "'What's that?' I asked. 
the noon edition of the sun says the finger of suspicion points very strongly to mrs felderson i hurried out to the car and jumped in mary we've got to work fast is helen suspected she asked yes the sun is more than hinting the news seemed to bring out the fight in mary well we'll prove her innocent when we reached the Pendleson's, we hurried into the house and went at once to the room where Jim and Helen had their argument. The revolver was not there. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney Chapter 8 it looks bad for Helen. I drove Mary to the hospital with my spirits at lowest ebb. If the son were going to try to convict Helen of the murder, I realized that we had a hard fight ahead of us, for that yellow sheet was most zealous in hounding down anyone who happened to be socially prominent and in demanding punishment. The blacker the scandal, the deeper they dug, and the more details they gave to their gluttonous, filth-loving public. They would be particularly eager here, for they had no love for Jim, due to the stand he took against them during the war. I knew the reporters would be hot on my trail, and that sooner or later they would interview Mary. So I determined that Mary should spend as much time as possible at the hospital, feeling sure the reporters would not be allowed into the room where Helen lay, battered and unconscious. As for me, I wanted to get to the bridge on the Blandsville Road as quickly as possible, and from there to the country club, to inquire what Woods had done the night before. I made up my mind I'd lead the reporters a merry old chase before they ran me to earth, and when they did, I'd tell them nothing. I also wanted to get in touch with Robinson as soon as I could, to find out whether he had discovered anything new of Zalnick and his confederates, but that could wait until evening. At the hospital they were at first opposed to having anyone in the room with Helen, who still lay in a coma, but with the help of one of the nurses in charge it was at last arranged. As I drove over the road to the club, the bleak barrenness of the country struck me anew. Twenty-four hours before Jim had been alive. Twenty-four hours before we had been standing in our office discussing the proof of Woods' guilt, and Woods had telephoned to Jim, asking him to come to the country club alone. My suspicions of the man stirred afresh, so that when I came to the bridge and I found no one there, I decided to leave my search for the revolver until later, and go straight on to the club. It was still early for the golfers and the bridge players, and there were only a few people there, these, of course, came up to me and pressed my hand with genuine sympathy. I realized how many, many friends Jim had, and what a loss his death was to them all. As soon as I could disengage myself, I hunted up Jackson, the negro waiter and general houseman, who knows everything that happens at the club. He had just finished his dinner, and I drew him into the cloakroom, so that our talk might be uninterrupted. I took out a five-dollar bill and held it up before his expectant eyes. "'Do you see that, Jackson?' I questioned. "'Yes, indeed, I sees it, sir. 
I may be gettin' old, but I ain't blind yet. I'll give you what you wants instantly. He started to leave, but I grabbed him. That's not what I want, Jackson, I laughed. Since the prohibition law went into effect, it has been only through some such ritual that wets can get theirs at the club. All I want is to ask you a few questions. For dat money? His teeth gleamed. I nodded. Mr. Woods was here last night, I asked abruptly. Yes, sir. What time did he come in? I can't rightly say, Mr. Thompson, but he had dinner out here about 7.30, he answered. Did he leave the club after that? Not till the telephone call come what say Mr. Felderson been killed. Then he left with Mr. Brown and Mr. Paisley. You sure he was here all that time? I asked. No, sir. I ain't, sir. But I seen him ever now and then, through the evening. Was he here at quarter past eight? I questioned. He was here at twenty-five minutes past eight. I knows, cause I done brought him a drink. You sure of that? Yes, sir. Positive, the negro answered. Cause I look at de clock right then and there. As near as I could figure, the accident had happened about 8.10 or 8.15, and the bridge was six miles away from the club. Woods couldn't have been at the bridge at the time of the tragedy and got back to the club by 8.25. Still, he might have had an accomplice. "'Thank you, Jackson,' I said, giving him the money. "'Just forget that I asked you any questions.' The darky chuckled. "'I done forgot em before you asked em, sir.' Thank you, sir. As I passed into the big central living room, Paisley came in. What was this I saw in the sun? he asked. The sort of rot that nasty sheet always prints, I said. Nothing to it, of course. I thought not. You don't feel like golfing? I shook my head. Not today, old chap. By the way, were you with Frank Woods when the news of Jim's death reached the club? Yes. Why? he asked. "'You won't think it too strange if I ask you how he appeared to take it,' I said, trying to make my remarks seem as casual as possible. Seeing the puzzled expression on his face, I added, "'I know it is a peculiar thing to ask, but please don't think any more about it than you can help, and just answer.' "'Why,' Paisley began, a little flustered, "'why, he took it just the way the rest of us took it, I suppose.' I don't remember exactly. Did he seem surprised? I questioned. Of course, Paisley answered. He didn't seem relieved? Say, what the devil are you driving at, Thompson? Paisley burst out. I saw I could get nothing from him, so I left him looking after me with a perplexed and somewhat indignant gaze. As a detective, it seemed I might make a good plumber. I knew very well he would not repeat my questions, but it would be just like good old Paisley to worry himself to death trying to solve them. I drove back to the bridge, determined to find the revolver, if possible, and then hunt up Inspector Robinson to learn what he had to report. Apparently my suspicions of Frank Woods were groundless. He had had dinner at the club and then waited around for Jim to keep his appointment. He had been seen by Jackson at 8.25. Jackson was positive of that fact ten or fifteen minutes at the most in which to go six miles to the bridge and back to the club, put up his car, and ask Jackson for a drink. 
the thing couldn't be done. He had heard of Jim's death with surprise, and had heard of Helen's injury with the greatest horror. There seemed to be no doubt of one thing, no matter how much he wished for Jim's death, no matter how much he benefited by the murder, Frank Woods himself didn't do the killing. An automobile was standing at the bridge when I got there, and I cursed the whim that had sent me to the club on a false scent, and kept me from having an uninterrupted search for the weapon. When I saw, however, that the driver of the automobile was Inspector Robinson, I was greatly relieved, for this would not only give me a chance to learn what he had discovered concerning the men in the black limousine, but would not interfere with the search for Jim's gun. Robinson had his coat off and his sleeves rolled up, and was fishing around the edge of the little creek with his hands. So engrossed was he in his task that I was almost upon him before he looked up. "'Good afternoon, Inspector,' I addressed him. "'What are you doing, digging for gold or making mud-pies?' "'I'm getting bait to catch a sucker,' he snarled. "'You must have thought you had one this morning.' "'What do you mean?' I asked." "'All that bunk you handed me about Schreiber and the men in the black limousine. "'That was a fine stall you pulled. "'I might have known you were trying to cover up somebody's tracks.' "'He dried his hands on a rather flamboyant yellow handkerchief. "'I haven't the least idea what you are talking about,' I replied coolly. "'Oh, you haven't, haven't you?' the little man burst out malignantly. "'You're innocent, are you? Too damn innocent.' I suppose you didn't know that your brother-in-law was shot in the back of the head, and that your sister was the only one that was with him when it was done. I suppose that's news, eh? My heart stood still as I heard his words. So he was after the proof that Helen did it. He read the insinuations in the sun, and had abandoned his work against Schreiber and Zolnick for the fresher trail. I found out this morning that my brother-in-law was shot, but that only makes the case look the blacker for those who openly threatened his life. "'Among whom was your beautiful sister?' the detective retorted acidly. "'How do you know that?' I demanded. "'From her maid and all the rest of the servants in the house. I found that out when I went up to take another squint at the automobile. "'You thought you were pretty smart sending me on a wild goose chase after a couple of cracked socialists.' when all the time you knew it was your own sister done the thing. Tried to keep me off the trail by slipping me a little dough. Well, it didn't work, see. There's your dough back. He threw a crumpled wad of bills on the ground at my feet. No one saw you give it to me, but I ain't taken any chances. You might have marked those bills. From now on, I work alone without any theories from you. Look here, Inspector, I demanded. I was in earnest when I told you I wanted you to find out all you could about the men in the black limousine. I'm sure they had something to do with Mr. Felderson's death. I didn't try to bribe you, nor throw you off the right track. Even though my sister did have a little unpleasantness with her husband, it was no serious difference. I determined to find out just how much Robinson knew. She was utterly incapable of doing an act like this, what possible motive could she have? I could see that Robinson was rather impatiently waiting for me to go before he continued his search. Well, I ain't found out her motive yet. That can wait. 
It might have been money or jealousy. Money, I scoffed. My sister has plenty, more than she could use. And as for her being jealous of her husband, that is even more ridiculous. The little man eyed me angrily. I said that the motive could wait. There's no telling what a society woman will do. She may have been crazy for all I know, but I ain't, and all your arguing is just so much time wasted. You think those guys in the automobile done it? I don't. I think your sister done it. You don't. All right, then. You take your road and I'll take mine, and we'll see who comes out ahead. He turned and started back to where he had been hunting when I came up. "'May I ask what you expect to find here?' I queried, walking after him. "'Sure, you can ask,' he replied. As he found me following, he turned and snapped. "'Say, what the hell are you hanging around here for, anyway?' "'I merely wanted to ask you what you had discovered about the men in the black limousine. That's why I stopped.' "'Well, you've found out, haven't you?' "'Nothing. All right, then.' You go on into the city and see if you can find out anything more. I walked on down the sloping bank, searching the ground to see if I could find the gun that might reveal so much. I could feel the eyes of the inspector boring into my back. What are you looking for? he demanded. A cufflink, I answered easily. I think I lost one here last night. You didn't happen to find it, did you? A cufflink? Huh, he grunted. No, I haven't found it, but I wouldn't be surprised if I was looking for that same cufflink. All this time I was searching the bank with my eyes. A scrubby little bush overhung the creek, and I kicked at it with my foot. There was a plop, as though something heavy had dropped into the water. Instinctively I knew it was the object for which we were both searching, and I turned to find the inspector eyeing me quizzically. What was that noise? "'What noise?' I asked. "'Sounded as though that precious cufflink of yours had dropped into the water.' He started for me, and as he did so I bent down and plunged my hand into the water. My fingers closed on the revolver, just as he came bounding toward me. With a quick shove I pushed it far into the soft clay of the bank, and, grabbing a rock off the bottom of the creek, withdrew my arm from the water, and slipped the rock into my pocket. The red-faced little detective was peering over my shoulder as I turned. Rarely have I seen a man so angry. "'Give me what you pulled out of that creek!' he almost screamed. "'What for, Inspector?' I asked quietly. "'Never mind what for. You give me what you found in that creek, or I'll—' He grabbed me by the shoulder. "'All right,' I said. "'All right, Inspector.' "'Don't get so excited over nothing. It's yours.' I pulled the muddy rock from my coat pocket and gravely handed it to him. It was only an ordinary, everyday rock. I didn't know you were a geologist. He pounced on me and ran his fingers over my person. Red-faced, he surveyed me. "'I ain't a geologist, but I am a criminologist. And just one more of your monkey tricks like that?' and I'll put you where you'll have time to study a lot of rocks and do a lot of thinking before being funny again. Now you get out. Get into that car as quick as you can, if you know what's good for you. Hoping I could retrieve the revolver later, and realizing that nothing could be gained by staying there longer, I started toward my car. 
I had hardly taken five steps when I heard a joyful yell and turned to see Robinson struggling to his feet, the muddy revolver in his hand. "'Here's your cuff-link,' he cried. "'Before I'm through you'll find that this ain't a cuff-link, but a necklace for the neck of that pretty sister of yours. You, with your socialists and your cuff-buttons, trying to keep me from getting what I go after? Well, it didn't work.' It don't usually when I go after something. It didn't work, did it? No, it didn't work, I admitted. Oh, I don't blame you, Robinson went on, mollified by his success and the soft tone of my reply. I'd have done the same thing in your place if my sister was a murderer. The word murderer acted like an electric shock on me. She didn't do it, I tell you. She couldn't have done it. Now, Mr. Thompson... "'Robinson began in a soothing voice. "'These things happen in even the best families sometimes. "'You mustn't take it too hard.' "'Will you let me examine that revolver?' I demanded. "'Why, no, I can't let you examine it. "'But I'll examine it when I get ready.' "'Will you be so good as to do it now?' I asked. "'What for?' "'Because it may not have been fired at all. "'That would make things look entirely different, you know.' The inspector took out the gaudy handkerchief again and wiped the mud off the barrel and the grip. I had shoved the pistol barrel foremost into the bank so that the muzzle was filled with clay. It was Jim's, a thirty-two automatic. "'It won't be spoiling any evidence by my cleaning this mud off the outside, because you put that there yourself,' the detective said, wiping the pistol carefully." He released the spring and pulled out the clip. I saw a cartridge at the top of the clip and exclaimed, "'There, you see? That gun was never fired!' The inspector looked at me with a pitying smile. "'Now that's where you're wrong, Mr. Thompson. You see, you don't know the inner workings of an automatic. When a gun like this is fired, it discharges the old shell, and a new cartridge comes to the top of the clip.' There are only three cartridges left in this clip. "'Do you mean to say that my sister fired more than one shot?' I asked sarcastically. "'Not at all, not at all,' the little man responded airily. "'There were probably only four cartridges in the gun in the first place. "'You're getting all excited over this thing. "'Of course I don't blame you, Mr. Thompson, for trying to fight against facts, "'but it certainly looks bad for your sister.' I got into my car and started home, my heart dead within me. It certainly did look bad for Helen. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney Chapter 9 Look out, Jim. A good general realizes when he is beaten and changes his tactics accordingly. Where I had been certain of Zalnik's guilt before, and had planned his prosecution, now, with the sickening certainty that it was my sister herself who was guilty, I began to plan her defense. Yes, I'll admit right now, the gun convinced me. I had been certain that Jim had not been killed through careless driving, that is why I had been so insistent that Inspector Robinson should hunt down those responsible for his death. 
Now that it was too late, I cursed myself for not having let well enough alone, and aided the coroner in giving a verdict of accidental death. My suspicions against Zalnik had been based on the knowledge that he had hated Jim and would have liked nothing better than to put him out of the way. Coincidence had brought him over the same road that Jim had traveled a few minutes before his death. This had strengthened my suspicions, but the case would have been hard to prove, while the evidence against Helen was too pronounced to be disregarded. Woods, too, had gained my suspicions, and yet he was miles away from the murder. I realized suddenly that I had been refusing to look at the obvious in order that I might place the guilt where I wanted to believe it lay. Yet it did seem the irony of fate that the two men benefiting by Jim's death should have had nothing to do with it. Helen did it. As the awful realization of what that meant came over me, I hoped for a brief second that death would take her and so spare her the consequences of her act. It would be such an easy way out. I felt sure that if she died I could hush the whole thing up. The son could be bought if enough money was offered. These gruesome thoughts carried me into the city almost before I knew it. I stopped at the house to change my muddy clothes before going to the hospital to get Mary, and learned from the maid that Mother had been asking for me. I went quickly to her room. She was lying in bed, and at first I thought she was asleep, but she turned as I approached her. "'Is that you, Warren?' she asked softly. "'Yes, Mother. Stella said that you wanted to see me.' I bent down and kissed her lightly. She reached up and put her thin, weak arms around my neck. "'Warren, is there anything wrong? If there is, you must tell me.' "'No, Mother. What made you think that?' I asked. She slowly withdrew her arms and let them fall at her side. "'I don't know. I seemed to feel that something had happened. Just lying here I felt afraid for you children. And then there were so many people ringing the bell and the telephone.' I was afraid that some accident had happened to you, or Helen. I patted her wan cheek. It's just your imagination. The only thing wrong is that my dearest little mother isn't as well and strong as her good-for-nothing son. I kissed her again, and she smiled up at me. I'm so glad, she whispered. I was so worried. I almost choked when I got outside. If Helen should recover and be put on trial— it would kill mother, I felt sure. And I would be left alone in this world. Downstairs I asked Stella who had called, and she told me the reporters had been trying to find me all day. During the drive to the hospital I tried to focus my mind on Helen's defense, but all the force seemed to have been sapped out of me. I felt weak and miserable and unutterably lonely. At the hospital they received me with the quiet sympathy that strengthens you in spite of yourself and gives you hope. Dr. Forbes, who had operated on Helen the night before, was in the office. He had just come from Helen's room, and he reported her condition to be extremely satisfactory. "'There is only one thing that worries me,' he said. "'Your sister seems to have something on her mind that keeps her from resting as quietly as I could wish.' It is some real or fancied danger that repeats itself over and over in her delirium. 
If we could only hit on something that would ease her mind of those fears, I should have every reason to believe she'd get well. I say this to you because you are her brother, and are no doubt acquainted with what had happened to her in the last few weeks, and may be able to suggest what it is that she fears. Perhaps it is the accident itself, I offered. He shook his head. It may be, but I think not. However, suppose you step into the room and listen to what she says. If we can only rid her of her fears and get her to rest quietly, I am positive she will recover. I shook his hand warmly and went upstairs to Helen's room. I knew what it was Helen feared, the consequences of her crime. The terrible fear of public prosecution for the murder of her husband was torturing her poor delirious brain. For a moment I forgave her everything and pitied her from the depths of my heart. The smell of ether lay thick in the air as I walked down the long corridor to Helen's room. I knocked softly at the door, and a white-capped nurse opened it a little way, her fingers to her lips. I beckoned her outside and told her Dr. Forbes wished me to find out, if I could, what troubled my sister's mind. As we entered, I saw Mary sitting by the bed, holding the hand of the poor white figure that lay, death-like, beneath the sheet. Helen's head was swathed in bandages, except for the oval of her face. She looked quite like some fair nun who had said her last ave. It was impossible to believe that it was her hand that had fired the shot that killed Jim, and if she lived, that she would have to face the world a murderer. Mary only glanced at me for a moment and then turned her eyes again to Helen's lips to catch any sound that might pass them. As I watched her sitting there so patiently, a little pale from her cramped vigil by the bedside, a great tenderness welled up in my heart for her. Just then Helen's lips began to move. At first the words were inaudible, although Mary leaned forward to catch them. Then, with a half-cry, in which there was a perfect agony of fear, "'Look out, Jim! It's going to hit us! Oh, oh, oh!' The voice died away and was succeeded by moans, low and trembling. Mary glanced up with a startled look in her eyes. The nurse went quickly to the bedside and soothed the impatient hand that was plucking at the sheets. As for me, my forehead was bathed in sweat and tears were running down my cheeks, but a joy throbbed and sang through my heart till I felt that I should suffocate unless I left that ether-filled room for the open air. I tiptoed toward the door and caught a nod from Mary as I passed, which said she would join me later. For a second after I closed the door, I couldn't move. My legs failed me, and I felt I was going to faint. Gathering all my strength, I stumbled over to a chair by the window and sat down. I think I should have dropped to my knees and thanked God right there, if I hadn't feared that my prayers would have been interrupted. That cry, Look out, Jim! proved not only that Helen had nothing whatever to do with Jim's death, but that she had tried to warn him of his danger. It's going to hit us! What could that mean but that my first theory was correct, that the men in the black limousine had recognized Jim's car, and had tried to run him into the ditch? Schreiber and Zalnick were at the bottom of it after all, and Helen was innocent. As I had hoped she would die, 
when I thought her guilty. Now I hoped and prayed she would live. I recalled Dr. Forbes' words. If we could only hit on something that would ease her mind of those fears, I would have every reason to believe she would get well. I could at least tell him the cause of the fear and leave it to him to find a remedy. With Helen well ready to testify as to the details of that tragic night, we could certainly bring Jim's murderers to trial. The door opened and Mary came out. I rose and walked over to her, my eyes still betraying the emotion Helen's words had roused in me. "'You heard what she said,' Mary breathed. "'We knew she didn't do it, didn't we? "'But, Warren, the things she says are all so weird and mixed up. "'Sometimes she talks of things that happened just recently, "'and then again she babbles of things that took place a long time ago when we were kids. "'Once when the nurse came into the room, "'Helen began crying as though her heart would break, "'and begged that we wouldn't think too harshly of her.' Again she repeated over and over, He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Her other fears, I replied, probably had to do with Woods, but that cry to Jim to look out is a real clue, and I'm going to sift it to the bottom. What are you going to do? I'm going to accuse Zalnik of Jim's murder, going to accuse him to his face. Oh, be careful, Bups. Nothing must happen to you. The tone she used, her sweet anxiety for my safety, went to my head and I reached out and took her in my arms, but with a little protesting gesture she stopped me. Please, don't be foolish, Warren. Then as she saw my spirits droop, she added, Not until Helen is well. End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter Ten. I accuse Zalnick. Mr. Zalnick is busy and can't see you. The girl, evidently a stenographer or a secretary, looked coolly competent in her white shirtwaist and well-made skirt. I was surprised to find a young woman of her evident education and refinement in the employ of such a man. Did you give him my message? I asked. Yes. He said he was not interested. I felt vaguely disappointed that my strategy had not worked. I had given the name of Anderson, and had represented myself as the head of the Steamfitters Union of Cleveland, anxious for instructions on how to settle a labor problem in our local union. I had done this, feeling that if I gave my own name, he might refuse to see me. Apparently my alias was to have no better success. When will he be free, can you tell me? I couldn't say, the girl answered. He is very busy at present, but, if you will come in and wait, perhaps he will see you later. It seemed to me that there was the faintest suggestion of a smile on the girl's face, as I stepped across the threshold and into the small waiting-room, but I hadn't a chance to observe more closely, for she turned her back on me and once again resumed her typewriting. The room in which I found myself was one of a dingy suite in an old warehouse that had been converted into a newspaper building to house the uplift, a weekly paper edited by a Russian Jew named Borsky and financed by Schreiber. It was a typical anarchistic sheet, and had been suppressed for a time during the war. 
Opposite where I sat was a door from which the paint had peeled in places. This evidently led into Zalnik's office, for I could hear the murmur of voices behind it. The rooms were ill-lighted and unclean, and it made me mad to see as nice a girl as the stenographer working herself to death in such dingy surroundings and for such a man as Zalnik. I watched her as she worked and marveled that anyone could make her fingers go so rapidly. I noticed with admiration and dissatisfaction that, unlike my stenographers, she didn't have to stop to erase a misspelled word every two minutes. I wondered what salary Zalnik paid her and if she would like to change employers. "'I hope you will pardon my interrupting your work,' I began. "'You're not,' the girl responded without even glancing up. "'May I ask if you are entirely satisfied with your employment here?' "'Why do you ask?' she inquired, stopping for a moment and fixing me with clear gray eyes. "'I am badly in need of a competent stenographer, and I thought you might prefer working in a place where the surroundings are pleasanter and the pay is probably higher.' She studied me a moment, as though card-indexing me, then having apparently decided that I was in earnest, and not merely trying to flirt, that elusive smile again played about her mouth. "'You are the first steam-fitter I ever met that found himself badly in need of a stenographer.' Caught, I bit my lip at the stupid blunder, but had to laugh in spite of myself. "'Your make-up is all wrong, Mr. Anderson, if your name is Anderson. I don't know what you are trying to do, nor why you picked out steam-fitter as your mythical life-work, but I do know you aren't a detective.' This time the smile came out in the open. I liked her immensely. She might make an ally. She would at least know what had happened in the office during the last few days. Miss Miller, she added. Miss Miller, I am a lawyer, and my sister is about to be accused of a terrible crime, which she didn't commit. I think I know who did commit it, but so far I haven't been able to connect him definitely with the crime. I think you can help me. Will you? What makes you think I can help you? she asked. Because you are so situated you can observe the person I believe to be responsible for the crime, I replied. Her gaze changed from pleasant questioning to indignant surprise. When she spoke, her voice was coldly final. I think you have made a mistake in judgment of character. Please let me finish my work now. "'Miss Miller, please don't think for a minute that I—' Behind me a door opened, and, as I turned, I found myself looking into the wrathful eyes of a stunted little man with an enormous head. Anyone who has once seen Zalnik can never forget him. His wizened, misshapen body is a grotesque caricature of a man's, which, surmounted by his huge head with its bushy hair, makes him look for all the world like some scientist's experiment.' In the doorway to Zalnik's private office stood Schreiber, a heavily-jowled, unsmiling mastiff of a man. "'What do you want that you should be keeping my stenographer from working?' Zalnik's voice rose in a shrill crescendo. "'Get out of here. You have no business here. Get out!' "'Zalnik, I came here to speak to you.' "'Get out!' he screamed. "'I won't talk with you. I have no time to waste, even if you have. I know who you are.' You're the brother-in-law of Felderson, the blood-sucking millionaire who sent me to jail. I won't talk with you, do you hear? 
As he grew more excited, I seemed to grow colder. Zalnik, I'm going to swear out a warrant against you for my brother's murder. For a moment the little man blinked at me in amazement. Then he threw back his head and laughed, a shrill giggling squeak. With his fists he pounded his misshapen legs. You are arresting me for murder? He he! You hear, Schreiber? He is going to to arrest me. Suddenly he stopped as quickly as he had started. Go ahead, arrest me, try to send me to prison again. I'll make you sweat blood before you are through. You think I killed him, your brother? I wish I had. I'd be proud to say I killed him, you hear? I wish I had killed him. I wish he were alive so I could kill him myself. The little monstrosity emphasized each of his staccato sentences by stamping a puny foot on the floor. His gloating over Jim's death was more than flesh could stand. Stop, I yelled. If it wasn't you that killed him, it was one of those murderous cutthroats and anarchists that hang with you. If it wasn't you, then it was Schreiber's son, that Prussian jailbird, or one of his friends. Zalnik's eyes blazed. You call us anarchists and cutthroats? You, who are a product of the rotten government that has ground down an oppressed people I represent? Because we rebel, you throw us in prison, making a mockery of your boasted liberty. So they did for a time in Russia. You call us cutthroats? It's a good term. I hope to God we earn that title. Finding that the talk was turning into political harangue, I turned my back on Zalnik and started toward the door. Schreiber followed me. Just one minute, there was heavy menace in his look. You called my son a chillbird a minute ago. He was in jail because he did right, but that don't matter. You excited because your brother was killed. We don't know nothing about it. We heard about it next day. I don't have nothing against Velderson. But if you do try to put my son Karl in jail again, something will happen to you. I'm telling this to you for your own good. Disappointed at the interview, I closed the door behind me and started down the hall. I don't know just what I had hoped to find out, but I thought Zalnik would betray himself in some way, must in some way show his guilty knowledge of Jim's death. Instead he had laughed at me when I threatened to arrest him, even wished he could claim the credit for the crime. I heard the pattering of feet and turned round to find Miss Miller behind me. Mr. Thompson. Yes, Miss Miller. A few moments ago you asked me to help you discover who killed your brother-in-law. For some reason you think Mr. Zalnik had something to do with it, and you wanted me to give you any information I could about him? Yes, I responded. When you made the proposal, I was very angry because I resented your thinking I'd spy on my employer. However, your suspicions are so ridiculous, I feel it only fair to tell you that you're wasting your time. What makes you so sure that Zalnik had nothing to do with it, Miss Miller? Because I know he is utterly incapable of doing anything of that kind, she answered. I half smiled. Mr. Zalnik has the reputation of holding life very cheaply, that is, the lives of others who stand in his way. He hated my brother-in-law for that very reason. If he didn't kill him, it wasn't because he didn't want to. For proof of it, you heard what he just said in there. 
The girl looked me over for a minute. A faraway look had come into her eyes. "'Mr. Thompson, Mr. Zalnick is obsessed by a wonderful idea. You people call him Bolshevist and anarchist because he is trying to overthrow the existing order of things. In working out his great theory, he would stamp out a nation if it interfered with the fulfillment of his plan. And he would not think that he had done anything wrong. In fact, he would think it was the only thing to do. In that much, he holds life cheaply. But if you think he would descend to wreaking vengeance on individuals for personal spite, you are all wrong. He is too big a man for that. Did Zalnik send you out to say this to me? I asked suspiciously. The girl flushed angrily. Really, Mr. Thompson, you make it almost impossible for anyone to help you. Instead of being sent, I may be dismissed for having come out here to talk to you. You asked for my assistance, and now that I have tried to give it to you, you make me regret the impulse. She turned and started to leave, but I called her back. Miss Miller, please forgive me, and don't think me ungrateful. Mr. Felderson meant more to me than any person living, and I have made up my mind to bring his murderer to justice if I have to devote the rest of my life to it. I know that I have been jumping to conclusions. I've done a lot of things since Mr. Felderson's death that I can't understand myself, things that were entirely unlike me. But I feel that I would be a traitor to my brother-in-law's memory unless I follow every possible clue. He has only three enemies, and one was Zalnik who threatened him. Isn't it only natural that I should suspect him? Her look was entirely sympathetic as she replied. I know how Mr. Felderson's death must have affected you, Mr. Thompson, and I do want to help you. You say he had three enemies? Then I advise you to look for the other two, for I am positive Mr. Zalnick had nothing to do with the murder. I thanked her and went down the rickety stairs, believing somehow that she had told me the truth. But if not Zalnick, then who? I knew that in less than a week, as soon as Helen was well enough to stand the shock, she would be indicted, unless in the meantime I could discover the murderer. Helen had regained consciousness the night before, but was far too weak to undergo any questioning. My impatience at the delay, necessary before she could tell the story of the crime, had driven me, most foolishly I now realize, into trying to force Zalnick to a guilty admission of complicity. When I got hold of myself, I knew well enough that the only sensible course was to wait until Helen should be able to clear up the mystery. So I went to the office and began the heavy task of putting Jim's effects in order. End of chapter 10What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.